Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow, I'm still here. I also survived our stupid, broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together. Because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hey there, friends. We're off this week, and we wanted to bring you a best of like they used to do in the 70s with a clip show. But hey, this is your version of a clip show. Congratulations. A bit of a somber best of, though, because it involves my dear friend Glenn DeVry, who you may know the name, you may not, but he was one of the four astronauts on the Blue Horizon. You know, the one with William Shatner? Yeah, that one. He was a lifelong aeronautics nerd, always wanted to fly, became a pilot, and a week later, he tragically died in a private plane crash in New Jersey. And he was a genuine friend of mine and a titan of industry in healthcare. And it cannot be understated how huge of a loss this was for so many people. This show is from November of 2020. He had released a book called The Patient Equation that summer. During the pandemic, he released a book. And he came on my show as a guest, and we became instant friends. I mean, he got to live his dream. He got to go to space. He got to be an astronaut. And then, God, life's not fair. And I meant what I said by claiming him to be a titan of industry, the boat wake of his career, the impact he's had on healthcare will be enduring for all time. And you'll hear all about that in the interview. This show was a top 10 even before his tragic passing. And now it carries with it a whole new level of gravity. The whole show is called Three to One Contact because we channel that PBS show from the 1980s when we were kids. Not just a great conversation, a great human being, a story worth telling and a life worth sharing. Like I said, the best of, I mean it, this is the best of. This is Glenn DeVry. Glenn, I have a question for you. Welcome to Out of Patience. Thanks. Why are there so many syllables in science? <laughs> I think it's because everybody wants to live in their kind of ivory tower. And uh, almost ironically, even though as, as good scientists, we're all supposed to be skeptical. If we use big words to describe really simple things and like to, a lot of people can't question us. Uh, one of the things that I love, like uh, an autologous transplant, like, well, that sounds super fancy. It means I took something from you and I put it back in you. It's like super simple concept. So <laughs> I'm into simplicity too. What is the anti-gobbledygook of science? Right. Uh, the anti-gobbledygook of science is uh, ironically science. It's just how you talk about it. Actually, you know, a, a major hero for me, uh, I, I still kind of see the word biologist in the mirror when I look at myself in the morning, but I really want to be a physicist. 
And Richard Feynman was like my childhood hero. And he's the quantum mechanics guy. And uh, he was Stanford professor, um, Nobel Prize winner. Anyway, all that is irrelevant to his opinion on teaching. And he said, if you cannot teach it to a seven-year-old or explain it to a seven-year-old, you are not ready to teach it to anybody, like including a graduate student. And so I do think this idea of being able to like plain speak things is 100% compatible with science. We just need to all uh, choose to be cool about it. Is that fair? Picking up on that, I have an anecdote, and this goes back to some of the work that I did in CAR T-cell when it came out as an advocate in pediatric cool. cancer. And they're like trying to help the parents explain to the kids what the boo-boo is going to be and how this works. And I stepped in and like, you can't use these things with kids. I said, which one of you, you know, likes Marvel comics and who knows who Wolverine is and what's the metal and said, Wolverine? they're like, adamantium. And I said, well, what they're going to do to you is they're going to make your body full of adamantium. So you are impervious to the cancers and your body gets rid of it and the bullets just fall out of your chest. And they're like, ooh, that's super cool. And, you know, you're talking to like a 10 year old or an eight year old and that's yeah. all they really need to hear. Why can't we comic book those metaphors and have, you know, again, all the, the gobbledygook jargon? OK, so I first of all, I love superheroes and comic books on social. I'm at Captain Clinical and Captain Clinical is a superhero who fights for life sciences and good science that I made up years ago. So, like, I'm, I'm in. But because you bring up CAR T, I also use an analogy to try to um, demultisyllabalizeify the concept. Um, and I, I talk about packs of dogs because you know people don't understand what's happening from a, a uh, immunology perspective. And I say, all right, so uh, imagine your immune system is like a bunch of, of dogs, right? And they don't know how to hunt down your cancer. And what we do is we take a couple of the dogs out and we like give them the, the old dirty socks of your cancer. And we, we train a couple of the dogs how to detect that cancer, find it and fight it. And then we put them back in with the rest of the pack and they train everybody else how to do it. So I also use CAR T analogies. I don't know if that one's going to play as well with, with children, but you know, just if we're trading analogies. And now I can't get the Bloodhound Gang theme song from three to one contact <laughs> out of my head. By the way, 321Contact is entirely responsible for Metadata Solutions. I would have never done what I do in life if it wasn't for 321Contact. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're channeling our inner Gen Xers, and that's absolutely hypercritical in every conversation <laughs> I have. But for those that listening that don't know, 321Contact was a show on PBS here in New York. I think it aired nationally sometimes. And it was like, it was like the first Carl Sagan-ish kid show on PBS about science and math and engineering. And it just – anyway – I don't even know. They should release that somewhere in the annals of PBS. Please release the old 3 to one Contact streaming on Netflix or something. Anyway, not that Netflix listens to my show. I digress. Let's go back to why do you do this? Who's the inner human inside you? And you're at this. You're in this. for. You haven't quit your way to the top. You, you've been doing this for 20 years. What drives you? So, so I've been doing it for tw for twenty five years. If you um, if you count kind of before metadata, well, metadata twenty one. I think I was yeah. LinkedIn stalker. Yeah, yeah. So, so I really thought that I was going to spend my life apropos to three, two, one contact and Richard Feynman and uh, a couple of people inspired me uh, along the way. I thought I was going to spend my life as a scientist and probably teach at university and you know, work at my lab bench or work with my students. And I got. Um, really frustrated uh, doing research at the very beginning of my career 
because I was literally sneaker netting things. I was taking elevators and walking across streets and writing things in notebooks and retyping them into data sets. And in addition to being a science nerd, I was a computer nerd. I had always been since I was like a kid, you know, I had a, a Timex Sinclair 1000, which oh was my. the American version of a ZX81. Yes. Yeah, 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 old school. And so my go-to for almost everything in life still is, well, can we, can we code our way out of this problem? And I started thinking, can, can I code my way out of this research problem, trying to, to tie all the samples that I had and what was on my lab bench and all the patient records at the hospital I was working at. And that was really the, the kind of beginning, the glint in, in the eyes of myself and, and uh, my bench partner, um, who was a, uh, a resident at the time of Medidata. And frankly, you need to say, what drives me? I have like the best job in the world. Uh, instead of spending my life, not that this has been bad, studying you know, one gene and one cancer. Um, ironically, actually, I was even more excited about virology than I was about oncology. But anyway, now I actually get to do infectious diseases on Monday and oncology on Tuesday and cardiology on Wednesday and think about systems and think about data at super big scales. And so uh, I'm not complaining about how everything worked out, but it's, it's still, you know, me thinking about what can we do to do good science? Hashtag Captain Clinical. <laughs> and, yes, there uh, and, you what, go. and what can we do with code um, and data to make that actually work better? Um, I, I love that. So let's channel Moore's law. How close are we to the robot apocalypse? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what apocalypse we want to discount the most. I mean, I feel like we're, we're at least on our way to hopefully dodging a couple of them. Um, the, the, the robot apocalypse, as, as it pertains to biology, I think is actually in some ways kind of an exciting idea. Uh, if I can, maybe not apocalypse, but like, I feel like automation in science is a really hot topic. I, I remember doing a lot of, it's a good, like, science uh, word. I was doing like a lot of pipetting. Like uh, I was like, like using a syringe. I was, I was like squeezing little droplets of liquid into a bunch of little tubes. But all the stuff that I was doing at the lab bench, you know, there are people who are doing that now with robots and taking experiments. Like you, you don't have to have been a, a scientist in a lab. If you took high school chemistry, you know, you're sitting there with your Bunsen burner and tubes of stuff. I think people are still going to learn that in school to understand the basics, but all that stuff can be automated. And you take what's automated in the lab and you take some of the things that, that maybe you do at home to I don't know, take your temperature, something that might happen to you in a hospital, you, you get your pulse taken, something that might happen to you um, in a surgery, you know, instead of a human doing the surgery, robots can do the surgery. And if you take the robot metaphor and you extend it into the place where it's not actually a physical robot doing the work, but it's a, a piece of software that's looking at the data about you, but maybe data about hundreds, thousands, billions of people and doing mathematical exercises with that, doing math, but doing it at a scale that an individual person could never do. These are the robots that are revolutionizing the way we think about healthcare. They've revolutionized the, the stuff that we're delivering. So the robot apocalypse minus apocalypse plus healthcare, I think is a pretty cool thing. I can't wait to envision a day when my home smart device says, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't get you on that clinical trial. <laughs> I, uh, I also love 2001 A Space Odyssey. It, it, is there like a, a over under for how long somebody can hang with you on a podcast and one of us gives a reference that the other one doesn't know from the 70s, 80s or 90s? Like, I feel like we're doing pretty well so far. All right. Well, Goonies are gremlins. 
<laughs> I want to go Goonies. That is the correct answer. <laughs> Gremlins 2 or Back to the Future 3? Oh, that's tough. Yeah, see? Did I get you? Yeah. Yeah, you got me. I mean, I it, do I have to choose? <laughs> <laughs> you could go with the Wraith with Charlie Sheen instead. <laughs> I was I was going to go with the Leprechaun, but yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we're settling our differences. We're going to agree to disagree on a bunch of stuff. I want to channel my inner advocate hat because I ran a nonprofit for 15 years called Stupid Cancer. And we are always on the receiving end of if only more patients would just enroll in a trial. And, yeah. you know, that's the that's the trench up conversation and the top down is well they're here what's wrong with you and if there's any one through thread that i've witnessed it's the endless attempt to make sure that people that enter the shit happen store be it rare disease or cancer or whatever are made aware of not just standards of care if the yeah. option exists but it seems stacked against us we say the broken healthcare system, but it's working the way it was intended to work, which is not of the interests of the people that need the shit. Yeah, we, we have our, our mutual friend, uh, Alicia Staley, who uh, works in MediData on patient advocacy. And, and I know that this is a topic that she's passionate about. Actually, I, I just wrote this uh, book, um, or I didn't just write it, but it just came out called The Patient Equation. And the first anecdote in it, um, apropos to, to the idea that at least I'm going to um, talk, pitch to the world. Um, the first anecdote is about this guy who sadly has passed away. Did you know Jack Whalen? I did. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, Jack, for, for people listening who haven't met him or heard of him, was this guy who, who survived cancer for an extremely long time. He went into lots of, of clinical trials and he was one of the first people I ever met who actually tracked his his progress. He was tracking his, his quote unquote biomarkers, basically like the, the numbers that mattered in terms of how healthy or sick he was on a spreadsheet from his diagnosis through multiple clinical trials, through all of his therapies. And a lot of people, and, and by the way, I, I point the craggly finger of accusation at myself in this way sometimes. They, they put these blinders on, they say, because clinical trials, because testing whether a new drug um, or a new device is so important, and it is. They just think about the patient from the first day that they get into this trial, if they're lucky enough to find it, to your point, to the, the day that that trial ends. But this patient has been on a journey and is going to continue on it from the first day that they got their diagnosis. And they might be in clinical trial one and then clinical trial two, or maybe they're on a, an available on market drug in the middle, or maybe they're on a, it's a, a drug on the market that's being used, quote unquote, off label, meaning the, the doctor who they're with has found a drug that for another kind of cancer, another disease that they think might help. So they put them on it anyway. And we need to think about that patient journey, whether we're doing research or just practicing healthcare in that continuum. And, and I, I do think this is a place where we need advocates. I do think this is a place where we need to think about the quote unquote system. You know, I, I, I think a lot about access, like why, why is everybody uh, who's in a clinical trial uh, a rich white person who lives near an academic medical center? It's Boom. That's, that's it. Right? It's because that's the way the system works. We have to think about how we uh, get things out to other people. And, and technology, I think, can help in, all, in a lot of these dimensions. You know, we can make it possible to, to provide the, the care that's in the trial to people, regardless of their socioeconomic or geographic location. And we can try to think about the digital path, for lack of a better term, that patients are taking. Why can't we actually actively go out and find 
the patients and give the option to people um, who might benefit from a new experimental therapy. I, these are the, the, I hope, worthy things that, that um, at least I, I try to spend a lot of my time thinking about and working on. Back with our guest after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So what possessed you to write a book? And aren't there enough books? And what do you say? And I read your book and it's fabulous. It's called The Patient Equation. You mentioned it before. And the subheading is The Precision Medicine Revolution in the Age of COVID. How could we not be anything but in the age of COVID as we're recording this right now? But right. is there a post-COVID, post-apocalypse or post-COVID apocalypse version of your book where the applications still merit value? Yeah. So actually, um, th there was a pre-COVID uh, version of the book. And uh, sadly, the, the not the publisher, but the printer um, is actually like physically making the book closed and then went out of business. And so it, uh, we had to basically print it again. And it afforded uh, me the ability to kind of do what's really almost like a second edition. But it's the first one that's come out. And actually, it's almost the opposite. Like uh, the unfortunate situations in COVID made a lot of the stuff that was in the book so clearly a good idea. Not that all my ideas are good ideas. Frankly, a lot of things in the book aren't, aren't my ideas. I, I, I really wanted to put down on paper things that, yes, had come from things in my head, but certainly had come from the collective that I've been lucky enough to be part of, um, which is Medidata. And like we were talking about Jack before, all these people who I was lucky enough to, to meet, be mentored by along the way in kind of a string of, of connected ideas um, that hopefully would inspire people, that hopefully would help us deal with some of the stuff around access, around thinking about patient journeys differently. We've learned that we can't always assume that two people can be in the same room at the same time when they need to interact from a healthcare perspective. Like we, there were some really smart, forward-looking people who were talking about that a lot before COVID-19 happened. But then all of a sudden, 
the entire planet realized how right they were to be thinking that way. And so I think that the, the kind of post-COVID world looks a lot like some of the really forward-thinking people in the pre-COVID world wanted it to look um, but now maybe we'll, we've got some incentives to get everybody there a little bit sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, what I've seen from my crow's nest is this forced adoption of telehealth and a recognition of sort of the the destigmatization. I, I I make a lot of references to when we were uh, afraid to use our credit cards on eBay and PayPal in the late '90s, and here we are today buying anything every day on our phones in ten seconds with Amazon Prime or the Shop app or whatever. The hesitations that people had around, well, I don't know if I just want to stare at somebody over video and show them this thing on my arm. And now they're doing it because they have to. But it's it's like the ebb tide of COVID has pulled the ocean back and shown all these things that we were just kind of talking about in hyperbole. And now we're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, can I give you a slightly apocalyptic additional thought? Only if James Cameron said it. <laughs> So so in in the unfortunate James Cameron post-apocalyptic movie, what uh, what humans will have realized. And, and unfortunately, I think this might be more of a documentary than a 3D um, fantasy um, is that when nobody goes to the doctor across the planet for a year, that actually has a real societal impact. So, yes, we are dealing with a major disaster with a global pandemic. But we're also going to be dealing with, and frankly, we're probably dealing with it, and the people who are part of what I'm going to say may not even know it right now. We're dealing with people who didn't go to the doctor who would have had chronic or life-threatening diseases diagnosed because we've all been home. We're going to deal with double the number of people who haven't actively managed their chronic conditions than we would in any given year having to manage them. We're going to deal with people, and I know that both of us know them, who couldn't or shouldn't have gotten the kind of therapies for their life-threatening conditions that required them to go to a, a medical center because they couldn't be there physically around all the people who were spewing out uh, contagious particles. And so we're, we're going to have to – it's not like our healthcare system was like working perfectly beforehand around the world or certainly not in America. And now we're going to have kind of double the size of the problem to clean up. Um, and so I, I do think, if anything, I, I, you know, I'm actually usually a really optimistic person. I just I think it's kind of a call to action that we need to we need to get our shit together in terms of how we think about making these ideas reality. And your point about the kind of destigmatization of telehealth, that's a step in the right direction, at least from my perspective. Right, which leads to another destigmatization. I've been on the 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 train about we can't rebrand the phrase clinical trial. But even here we are, I'm, I'm 25 years out of having been diagnosed with cancer. And it was the boogeyman sentiment back then. And it's still a boogeyman sentiment today. And it's different now. It's not like you're just getting the, the napalm clinical trial. There's something that that Wolverines you. How, right. in your opinion, can the entire academic, scientific, pedagogical downstream system speak yeah. better to patients? I wish I had like a really good, simple answer to that. But I was I, hoping I, for I, just a one word answer. One word. Yeah. But but I, I, I'll i give you another perspective on the problem. It's one of the soapboxes I almost could, can't help myself from getting on, which is the opposite is when we talk about um, data, everybody talks about and I think it's the same problem you're, you're talking about. It's well, there's, there's patients in clinical trials and then there's the real world. And like that implies that people in clinical trials aren't real. 
Like, and these are real people who have real diseases, who are really suffering, and in some cases, really interested in the altruistic aspect of volunteering to try something and put their data into a data set. And so, um, and, and actually, I'll add one more kind of perspective, which is that the more we focus on what I'll call a precision therapy, like how, how do we give the best possible medicine to a patient at a given time? That means when we're narrowing down what medicine to give to a person, the same thing is happening with the people as happening with the medicine. We're narrowing the number of people that we're going to give a particular medicine to. And the way we match these two smaller and smaller circles is by connecting them with more lines of, of you have this gene, you don't have this gene, you had this condition before, you didn't have this, your blood looks like this, it doesn't look like this. So we're collecting more and more data. What's going to happen is everybody. I think it's going to happen in oncology first and cancer first, but it'll probably happen in almost every disease, every therapeutic area. We're going to be doing what what the, the scientists would call an N of one, what the researchers would call that. It just basically means that you there is no experiment that you can look back. There is no clinical trial to say, what do you do with somebody just like Glenn? Because Glenn's totally unique in this situation. What you have to do is start to intuit what's best for Glenn by looking at bigger sets of, of data. You have to do it responsibly. You have to guard people's privacy. You have to make sure that you're doing it in a in a way that is of benefit in terms of predicting what the best thing for Glenn is, using myself in the example. But it doesn't matter whether you're in what we would call a clinical trial or what, what somebody else would call a real-world practice situation. It's always going to be the same problem. How do we find that best thing for every individual person? The patient equation, the title, is in the book sometimes literally, but in other parts of it, always metaphorically around this idea of solving for that problem that I just described. How do we solve for making sure we use all this, these inputs to come up with the best output for the individual? 2x equals 8. Solve for x. Um, exactly. X is Joseph, and Joseph has this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you were talking about um, how, you know, the computer from 2001, you know, not letting Dave Bowman back into the spaceship. <laughs> I mean, I actually think some of the stuff around us, some of the, the, the sensory inputs that didn't exist before, right? We used to like go to our doctor and if you're healthy, maybe you'd see him like once a year, maybe you're really sick. You see him like once a week. That's still the, the minority of the amount of time that you're alive. And as we start thinking about sensors that can manage our cardiology, manage the way we, we or watch the way we move around and, and interact with, with the environment, like all these inputs are adding potentially terms to that equation. So, you know, it's 4Y squared plus 2Z cubed plus 8 m plus 5n like we gotta keep adding terms dude don't get all quadratic equation on me i can't go there anymore <laughs> i'm an avogadro's yeah. number guy and that's it that's the really interesting thing and, and when remember we were talking about the robots right it's the mathematical robots that are actually so we're not all trying to solve these even harder than quadratic equations um solving these almost impossible number of terms they're probably not all going to matter. They're probably not all going to be actionable. So the question is, what are the what are the things obvious and maybe not so obvious that we need to focus on? And and, and there's an unfortunate example in COVID actually. Like it, I I have been wrong about so many things related to COVID nineteen and, and SARS CoV two, the virus that causes it. So you know, 
I wouldn't follow anything I said from a scientific perspective, but the fact of the matter is many people like me were wrong nine months ago in terms of what the, the major terms in that equation for COVID-19 were. It was like, if you get exposed to the virus and you're old and your immune system is not healthy, then you are going to suffer from COVID-19. And by the way, those things seem to be true. But there also seems to be a lot of other things that are important inputs, and we don't understand them yet because we see people who have healthy immune systems and are young who are getting bad cases or in cases dying of COVID-19. And if we really understood the equation and we could predict who needed to be treated or who was going to suffer so we could, we could proactively do something about it, to me, that is exactly the same big class of problem to solve as pick the best medicine for the, the patient who just got, got diagnosed with cancer or pick the best preventative course of therapy for somebody who has a, a family history of heart disease. This is, these are all the same equation problem. I have a general curiosity question to, to wrap up the show. And I saw this either on your website or in something you said on, in, in, uh, in a video, virtual trials. What does that mean? Like what's the 30 second, 60 second pitch on a virtual trial? Yeah. Uh, can we go back to what we were talking about, about jargon? It just means that you're doing a trial with telemedicine um, or, or with something that is digital, uh, at least the way I think about it. So it used to be that we would put the, the person, the patient who's in the study in the clinic with the doctor. And remember, there's all kinds of logistical problems with that, obviously problems in the pandemic, problems around access. And now where instead of waiting for them to come to the clinic, maybe we're talking to them over their phone or their computer. Maybe we're shipping the drug to their house. Maybe we're letting them use a sensor to take their temperature or we're sending them to a pharmacy to, to get their blood drawn instead of having to go to the hospital so they miss less time at work and, and have it at higher quality of life. The virtual part is almost like virtual reality. It just means we're using digital to have the experience. Um, and there's a whole range of stuff we can do there. It, it's going to help us get more trials done with a broader set of people in a way that is societally and scientifically beneficial to everybody. Glenn DeVries is the co-CEO at Metadata Solutions or the Metadata Institute. We, we're going to get to that on our, we're going to have a post recap show. You'll, you'll be back really soon. Author of The Patient Equation, The Precision Medicine Revolution in the Age of COVID-19, available in bookstores now. Bookstores? How old am I? Online at Amazon <laughs> right now. Former pipetter, as I gathered from your your intro and uh three to one contact pbs fanboy from the 80s thank you for coming in on patience thanks so much that's all for now if you like the show be sure to subscribe leave a review on apple podcasts follow us on social and tell all your friends to listen Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.
Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 